I've always loved history, and in any form. The classroom, and a novel, a movie, a television series, or when I'm traveling, I'd love to get a private guide to show me where history happened. When I'm there, I imagine what it's like to live during that period, how society functioned, and within it, how individuals and families survived, and in some cases, thrived. For me, the reason is that the monuments, these places of spirituality, these palaces, massive infrastructure projects, and more, that survived over centuries, even over millenniums, point to a time when one ruled with vast riches and desired to express their position, their power, or in some cases, their vanity. But it was the people, sometimes enslaved, sometimes an entire society that was starved to feed an ambition or to realize a destiny. These are the stories that interest me the most. I mean, what price did we pay to have the Roman Colosseum, the Taj Mahal, the Sistine Chapel, the pyramids, or to walk the Great Wall? What lives were lost in carving marvel at a mountain, searching for gold within? How many backs were whipped into submission when there was no human rights, only the rights of those who demanded more? And let's look at Canada, a very young country. The most critical piece of civic infrastructure in our entire history was the Canadian Pacific Railway. And without it, you could argue there'd be no country called Canada. And what can we learn from that time when it was conceived, planned, and constructed to understand Canada today and the issues we'll face tomorrow? This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today. His name is Stephen R. Bowen. He writes in the history of exploration, science, and ideas. And I loved his 2020 book, The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. And today we're talking about his latest book. It's titled Dominion, The Railway and the Rise of Canada. Stephen, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So we were talking off interview and we both have this incredible love for history. And what I admire most about your passion is the way you put words to paper. The characters that you use, the way you bring them to life... I lived the building of the CPR, and I want to thank you for that because it was an oasis from a a hectic life. I don't always read books cover to cover because of just the commitment of putting a show out every week, but I couldn't put yours down. You don't know how glad I am to hear that. It just makes my heart sing almost. What I'm curious about is how do you choose a lane? I mean, you've done 10 books. You you cover exploration, science, ideas, uh, life of Captain George Vancouver. You know, we talked about earlier the Hudson Bay Company, a doomed Russian sea voyage. Where do you choose your topics? Do they just come to you? Hudson's Bay Company... How could I not tackle that topic when the opportunity presented itself and I was in discussion with my agent about things that might be more Canadian to bring me back, you know, into this area of the world? And, you know, then there's Dominion, the CPR. I mean, that's the great romantic, uh, iconic story of Canadian history and it flowed directly from the Hudson's Bay Company. So, you know, having an opportunity to revisit that story. I mean, the last time anyone wrote a broad popular discussion of that book was over half a century ago when Pierre Burton did that. It was 1970 it was published. I mean, the world has changed since then. We have different perspectives. There's been new research material come out. It's just time for a retelling of that that includes a broader array of personalities. I One of my great objectives is always to cast the net really wide and see how many different people that I can, and different perspectives I can bring into the story that wouldn't normally necessarily have been considered part of the CPR story, you know, which tend to 
sometimes focus on politicians and the great financiers and, you know, the, the senior engineers. I, I want to know, like, what was the life like for the workers? How, you know, how were the Chinese workers treated versus the other workers? How did the indigenous people respond to this uh, railway base being pushed through their land? Um, how was the world being changed by the railways coming? I mean, that those are the broader questions that I want to ask and update this story for, you know, the foreseeable future anyway. I'm wondering if you would indulge me and read what you said on that book as a way to entice people to go, don't just pick this up, bring it home and read it. Sure. In the late 19th century, demand for fur was in sharp decline. This could have spelled economic disaster for the venerable Hudson's Bay Company, but an idea emerged in political and business circles in Ottawa and Montreal to connect the disparate British colonies into a single entity that would stretch from the Atlantic to the Pacific. With over 3,000 kilometers of track, much of it driven through wildly inhospitable terrain, the CPR would be the longest railway in the world and the most difficult to build. Its construction was the defining event of its era and a catalyst for powerful global forces. The times were marked by greed, hubris, blatant empire building, oppression, corruption and theft. They were good for some, hard for most, disastrous for others. The CPR enabled a new country but it came at a terrible price. Such a powerful way to invite people in. And let's spend the next 40 minutes discussing this new country and this terrible price through the eyes of those many characters that you talked about. And let's start with a new country. Take us back to the early days of the Dominion of Canada. And before the railway really started to take hold, what was it like? And what was Montreal versus the rest of the country? Back then, Montreal was basically the only city that deserved the name uh, city. It was it was it had a much longer, more varied history than anywhere else. I mean, it was the center of the fur trade. It was also the center of um, you know New France. But when the British took it over, it became a center for British capital to flood in and start um, redefining the relationship with the fur trade and the industrial economy and the increase in farming. I mean, Montreal was the place. I mean, Quebec had double the population of Ontario. Quebec was probably 500,000. Um, what's now called Ontario was half of that. The Atlantic colonies themselves actually probably had 500,000. So Ontario was a, a very small player at the time, mostly rural, uh, poverty, lack of education. More than half of the people were completely illiterate, just scrambling to uh, make a living digging in the soil. And of course, the technology was so primitive back then. There was no electricity. There was no refrigeration. Um, there were basically no roads. Anything that needed to be transported in bulk either had to go by canal or, you know, by the later 19th century, um, series of railroads were beginning to be constructed between, you know, Montreal and out to the Atlantic colonies and Halifax and down to Ontario. So we're not talking about a very sophisticated, highly educated, technologically advanced society here. It was quite primitive. Ottawa, the center of the new confederation in 1867, the parliament buildings were just under construction. The entire city was under enormous uh, transformation. It was, it was filled with mud roads and shanty towns and leaking sewer pipes and endless construction and mess and people from all over the place wandering around. Um, it was a, a place that a lot 
a lot of travelers wish to just avoid if they possibly could. And what was happening south of us? You know, the United States of America, they sort of had a jump start on us, obviously, because they were seemed to be moving at a much different pace. They just had a more powerful economy. Their population was huge compared to ours, just like it is now, but they had a much freer open economy and railways were far more advanced. The US, you know, was wild and, and crazy. Anyone could really do anything. When, when immigrants were arriving across the Atlantic Ocean and getting off the ships in Montreal and, and sort of filtering into the Canadas, they often looked around at the opportunities that faced them and promptly le- left and fled to the United States. Did the United States start looking and saying the sort of place that a lot of people want to avoid might be territory they wanted to acquire? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great themes of the era is the fear of, of American expansion. By 1869, the Americans already had their own transcontinental railroad, and it extended from the eastern part of the country all the way up to San Francisco. So that enabled you know, a continental economy to develop and people were flooding all over. They were significantly further advanced and they had got, you know, with Alaska up there, there was the idea that they were going to control the entire continent. This concept of manifest destiny had been around for, you know, multiple decades. And many believed it was only a matter of time before they controlled all of Western North America. And that would, in fact, eventually result in the absorption of the Canadas into the United States as well. And this was one of John A. Macdonald's big great fears. He was culturally affiliated with the British Empire and uh, was very anti-American. He did not want Americans controlling the entire continent. And uh, that was one of his driving political philosophies that made him conceive the idea of having a railroad in the first place, because he knew that you couldn't have a country and claim that country, whether it's the Hudson's Bay lands or not, without any way of traveling to the various parts of that country within your own territory. So at the time, if anyone wanted to get into Western, what's now Western Canada, they had to ride an American railway um, and then come back north again, which is obviously a short-term solution. And that's why he approached British Columbia which was a very small colony. I mean, they had had a gold rush in 1858 and tens of thousands of gold seekers had flooded in and completely changed the sleepy economy of the old fur trade town of Fort Victoria. But all of, you know, British Columbia's commerce was with San Francisco. All of their travel was with San Francisco. Most of the people that lived there were actually Americans. And they were completely sandwiched between American territories to the north and south and five or six impenetrable mountain ranges heading to the east and then thousands of kilometers of prairies. They even used American postage stamps if they ever wanted to send anything. So, you know, you can see that it was pretty obvious the writing was on the wall that that territory was also going to become American too. And it was only the promise of a railroad that made them start to think, oh, maybe we should go that way instead of joining the United States. And so eventually that was... Part of the great debate and, and British Columbia in 1870 agreed to join into Canada on the provision that they were given a railroad and it was supposed to have been entirely constructed within 10 years. And is, was that John A. McDonald's? I mean, to me, this ranks up with Kennedy's moonshot because at the time, there wasn't the capital, there wasn't the necessarily the technology, the talent to create what he had promised BC. No, uh, he had no idea what, what he was promising. I mean, hardly anyone had been. I mean, he himself, of course, had never been anywhere. And I don't 
he just was making these promises in some, like you said, a moonshot, like what's the only way we can think of to avoid American expansion was uh, create this railway that would then be the sp- become the spine of the new nation, this sort of a skeleton upon which you could eventually hang all the other aspects of the economy and the culture and develop a whole region. And how about Amour de Cosmos? I mean, he plays an interesting role in your share with us where, how he emerges as part of this uh, teeter-totter where it's, are we going to go to the States or are we going to become part of Canada? Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting character, Amour de Cosmos. I mean, obviously, that's not his real name. I think he was born Alexander Smith in Nova Scotia. He eventually went west um, and he was part of the American Gold Rush in California and then came up to British Columbia during the British Columbia Gold Rush. In one sense, he was a social reformer, always advocating for um, Victoria to become more democratic. He was very much in favor of joining with Canada, although he was very anti-Chinese. And so he was one of the founders of the Anti-Chinese League and devoted a large part of his uh, career to pushing Chinese people out of the province and denying them the right to vote or passing discriminatory laws that penalized them. So, on one sense, he had some admirable characteristics. On the other hand, he was an odious character. So, he became the liberal, one of the liberal um, members of parliament from Victoria and was always uh, at loggerheads with Johnny MacDonald, particularly over the use of uh, imported Chinese laborers to build that section of the railroad in British Columbia. And then the third person that kind of emerges in your story as this promise is made, and now they're scrambling to keep this promise, is Sir Hugh Allen. Allen was a very um, important figure in in that era of Montreal. He was by far the most wealthiest person, by far the most politically connected person. He lived in the biggest house. He was the most respected person. He was the one who spent the most money on political bribes, or at the time what they called bonifications. And he began that basically from nothing when he was young. Um, born in Scotland and arrived over and just built this empire. He knew how to manipulate and manage people. And that's how he became so fabulously rich. His involvement in the railway is because he he didn't need the money, obviously. He was already staggeringly rich. But the prestige of being the one who you know, financed or built or somehow directed this railway was what influenced him to try and find some financial backers to, you know, help fulfill McDonald's dream. And so he especially went to the Americans because that's where a lot of the capital was at that time in the investment uh, atmosphere. And, but Johnny didn't want an American railway. He wanted the railway to be entirely within the country of Canada. Um, and that posed some problems because that terrain north of Lake Superior is not suitable for railways. It's all, it's all Canadian shield is lumpy granite. No one knew how they were going to build a railway over that. The, the obvious thing to do was to go south of Lake Superior where the land was flat. And of course, railways already existed along that terrain. And the fear was that Americans were going to finance a railway claim, get the Canadian subsidies to do it, claim that it was impossible to technically build the railway north of Lake Superior and then just run a branch line up to Manitoba. After which is exactly what they did intend to do. Hugh Allen got the money from the American financiers and he sprinkled it about as election bribes to try and help John A.'s conservative government win against Alexander Mackenzie's liberal government. You know, one was for the railway, the other one wasn't. And he was going to be then given the right to manage and orchestrate the railway. Now, he had concealed this American investment money. Eventually, the knowledge of the American investors and the bribes and the Canadian election scandal 
came to light, of course, as these things often do. And it was called the political scandal. It still remains one of one of Canada's greatest political scandals of, of all time. Somehow the, the documents uh, were stolen from a, a safe. <laughs> the Pacific scandal, right? Yeah, the Pacific scandal. You know, it wasn't the very, it wasn't the fact of bribery because at that time bribing for elections was quite common. There was no secret ballot that, uh, in 1872. Elections were public. You had to, you had to go and join into a big mob outside the tavern or whatever, where you know the different sides maybe have been buying drinks for each of their um, candidates and uh, yell and stamp and declare your candidacy publicly. So it was easy to bribe people, and it was easy. To, you couldn't take the bribe and then not not uh, fulfill your obligation to vote as you were told. So it wasn't the fact of the bribery; it was the fact that the bribery money was coming from American interests and that. Allen was buying the right to be the head of the CPR with his bribe money. You know, the news came to light and the, the government fell in 1874. And what I was also loved in your story is how you brought in this crazy inventor, Alfred Nobel, who obviously now we all know is the Nobel Prizes. But what role did Alfred Nobel play in turning this moonshot into possibility? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It was only actually in 1867 that his revolutionary uh, new development was called dynamite or Nobel's safety powder because um, earlier he had, he had tried to commercialize nitroglycerin. Now, ni you know, dynamite is nothing other than stabilized nitroglycerin. These substances had 10 times the blasting capacity of the old black powder. And that completely revolutionized how industrial development was going to take place, how you could blast rock for quarries, you could explode open harbors for larger ships to get in, you could blow tunnels through mountains, you could level granite with that, you could explode stumps out of farmland. It completely transformed the world. And that only came in in 1867. Of, of course, Nobel became extremely wealthy from this. And the dynamite immediately was used everywhere for Every last thing you can conceive of, all those industrial mega projects um, that completely transformed Western Europe and North America at that time were exclusively enabled by the fact of dynamite. And in the Canadian case, there's no way that they could have ever built a railroad over that Canadian shield by Lake Superior or through the various mountain ranges of British Columbia without the use of dynamite. And so that tied into the political dream and it enabled... Like you have a combination of technology and political willpower at the same time as steam power becoming much more common. That that's what really sort of pounded home this idea that we can do this. You know, we could build this massive infrastructure project now. The technology exists. All it requires is a bit of willpower. And how much did this play into our culture called Canada? Because we actually saw progress. We saw things that we could do without American capital or American ingenuity. When MacDonald lost the election after the Pacific scandal, uh, the liberal opposition under Alexander Mackenzie became in, and, and Mackenzie was a very cautious person. He didn't believe in this dream of Canada at all. And so for the next four years, he managed the railway as more like a public utility, and it was rife with extreme levels of corruption and insider uh, land trading, you know, the government officials would sort of leak to certain key people where they were going to open up the development of a little parcel of line. All those insiders would go up and buy some land cheap without telling anyone what was going to happen. And then 
resell the land back to the government at a massively inflated price next month or two. And this went on for four years with a, a whole great deal of, of corruption, a, a lot of swindles, tax money being completely wasted, um, and not a lot of track actually being built. It was only four years later in 1878 that McDonald was re-elected uh, with big majority government based on the premise of a series of protective tariffs to keep American industry out of the Canadas and get that railway built with all speed and stop this dithering and, and waste. And no, of course, the CPR as this new private corporation, it also had its, its corruption. But the momentum behind the project at that point in time, the people who were in support of it, who voted into McDonald, it was considered a great patriotic entity. Um, there was a lot of public support for creating this railway. That, that support is what really enabled the government to continuously be providing it with uh, grants and bailing out its near-failing finances for many, many years until it was completed. And Donald Alexander Smith, you know, we all studied that picture, the, the last spike, and he's in it. Was he a, a TSN turning point? Was he someone that came in and legitimized the project? Or has history just treated him so very kindly? I think it's so hard to get a handle on Smith. I mean, he's such an interesting character, study in contrast. I mean, came over from Scotland, was originally shuffled up to Northern Labrador because Sir George Simpson of the Hudson's Bay Company didn't like it that he thought that Smith was flirting with his wife when he was away on a business trip. And so sent him off into the boonies and a very minor person and a very minor career trajectory until he was around age 50. And that he finally came back to Montreal by then. George Simpson has been dead. The fur trade was in decline. It just happened that during the first Riel Rebellion, which happened in 1870, just when the land was being transferred from the Hudson's Bay Company to the new country of Canada, with the, you know, with Great Britain sort of mediating between the two parties, that Smith happened to be there and he was in Montreal. And so Johnny McDonald didn't know very much about the fur trade at all. He just kind of figured, oh, yeah, that's, that's that thing in Montreal. We better get this guy Smith down there. Now, of course, the fur trade wasn't really being managed by Mont out of Montreal anymore, but Smith just happened to be there. It was all up in the West and in the North, and the financiers were in London. But nevertheless, Smith came and met McDonald. McDonald said to Smith, you're a senior person at the Hudson's Bay Company. And Smith didn't deny this, even though he wasn't. Um, I want you to go out and negotiate with uh, Louis Riel. And so that's where Smith began his career trajectory, which since, you know, up to that point, he'd done almost nothing. And then all of a sudden, he was like a meteor shooting across the sky. He ended up being one of the richest people in the British Empire, probably richer than Sir Hugh Allen. He managed to negotiate the rights on a on a Canadian branch line that was coming from Winnipeg south to the U.S. border. And he, with some partners, secretly bought up the railway that was heading north from St. Paul and got it for almost nothing. And I think they had a thousand percent return on capital on that over the next 10 years. They made a hundred million dollars off of this rail line with the exclusive rights, the only rail line that could go into Canada. And that's how he became extraordinarily wealthy. And that's where his interest in the CPR was. But he's not really directly tied to the railway in any sense. Although he was trotted out at the end to hammer the last spike in. You know, you talked about Louis Riel. How about the indigenous? How was their appetite for this iron horse that was being 
first of all, their territory, they've been forced under reservations. And next thing you know, they're just seeing this next piece of technology and an ability to move so many people. They must have had an incredibly negative reaction to this. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the coming of the railway as a metaphoric symbol of what was happening on the land had extremely negative uh, repercussions for indigenous people. And it wasn't just the Canadian railway. I mean, the American railways, which I said were, you know, let's give them 10 years earlier in time, had also caused a great deal of change in Western North America. And some of that change had to do with increased numbers of people, which the Canadian Railroad was part of too, which brought diseases further into the interior of the continent. And some of those diseases, smallpox, tuberculosis, and other ones had devastating impacts on communities that had no immunity to them. Up to 80% of the population died. The social impact of that level of devastation is almost impossible to conceive in our world right now. The only equivalent I could ever come up is like the Black Death in Europe, which had a similar impact. But the railways were also bringing in uh, hunters and people who could hunt the bison herds, the buffalo herds. And their hides were being used as machine belts in the Industrial Revolution in the East. So many of these bisons were then shot and slaughtered, and the indigenous people depended on the bison for basically everything. All their clothing came from the bison. All of their materials that they used for their lodges came from the bison. A lot of the materials and tools that they used came from the bison. Um, bison were extremely important. It was also the majority food source. So when those animals were slaughtered and went into extinction primarily because of rail railway developments, which enabled this, that caused extreme widespread famine. Everyone's probably heard of the, um, you know, the great Irish potato famine. Um, Canadians should be equally aware of what I would call the great Canadian buffalo famine, which was every bit as devastating an event for the people involved in that as the potato famine was in Ireland. After the American Civil War ended, and with some of these American railroads pushing through, we also had a lot of um, like war refugees or people who could no longer integrate into any form of society as it existed at the time in the American East. And with an economic depression, a lot of these people just flooded west. And that's what created the extreme Wild West, mythologized era of the Wild West with six shooters, extremely um dangerous time with no centralized authority. Now, of course, there was no way to monitor or patrol borders at the time. So a lot of these people would be flooding into the, what's now called the Canadian West too. And they were very violent towards um, indigenous people. They were earning their money by the um, illegal and dangerous whiskey trade. Now, whiskey is in quotation marks. I mean, a lot of this stuff was wasn't what we would call whiskey. A lot of it had laudanum in it, which is addictive. It had ink in it to give it different colors and a multitude of other chemicals all boiled up. And it, they were serving that out to societies that were in the process of being devastated by by diseases and ended up causing a lot of problems on their own. All of these problems were happening to indigenous people at this time in the 1870s and 1880s when the railway and the survey crews and the construction crews were also pushing across. And that's when a lot of the, the treaties were signed from Ontario all the way to what's now called British Columbia. A lot of the treaties made grandiose promises of what the Canadian government would do in the event of some of these negative uh, things like famines and, and disease outbreaks, uh, which weren't entirely honorably ever 
you know, honored at that time. So I would say, yes, this entire period of time of which the, the railway is a huge metaphoric symbol, as well as being a physical manifestation of the change that was uh, happening throughout the Americas was extremely uh, devastating to almost all indigenous people that I could find any information on. And as I was reading your book, I really stepped into the footsteps of the Chinese workers, which were called coolies, and the indigenous that were known for their skills of scrambling over rock faces and putting dynamite in. But both of them were truly second-class workers in the eyes of the people building the railway. They were paid less. They were given the most dangerous jobs. I mean, especially the Chinese workers. I mean, many thousands of Chinese, I call them the temporary workers of the, temporary foreign workers of the air. They were brought in from labor brokers in China. Now, it should be mentioned that at that time, China was having huge problems as well. Uh, massive widespread famine, massive uh, civil wars going on and uh, economic disruption, which is why there was a mighty diaspora of, of Chinese uh, workers who were sent all around the world and ended up building railroads in the US and in Canada and Australia and down in South America. Labor brokers were basically selling their their people off and negotiating very low wages for them. And that's why they were brought in by the CPR, John A. MacDonald enabled it to happen at the federal level. Many thousands were brought into British Columbia and uh, at least 600 people, at least 600 people died on the one section in the canyons of the Fraser River from, you know, blasting rock or tunnels collapsing or one case that I read of where they were being lowered over the cliffs with ropes tied around their waist. They would be dangled down over the cliff, stuff the dynamite into the cliff, light it on fire, and, and yanked to be pulled up before it exploded off the, off the cliff. So you can imagine the conditions within <laughs> workers were just barely trying to survive at that era. It was, it was truly devastating. Now, these Chinese workers, if you've ever been along the Fraser Canyons, the picture of the railroad is on the cover of the book. You, you scratch your head and you go, you can't build a railway along there. And of course, you couldn't have without the lives of all of these people having been sacrificed to do so. So, you know, as you mentioned, the CPR being the greatest civic infrastructure project in Canadian history, um, and those workers paid the highest price and contributed the most to the completion of that project, I think wouldn't have been completed without the Chinese workers and some of the indigenous ones who also had the, the most dangerous jobs. Um, they deserve much greater recognition than they have ever been afforded up to this point. Do we have an estimate of how many Chinese workers or indigenous workers died building the CPR? Is there any numbers that, that you can say, confidently say that's fairly accurate? There was not a lot of statistics kept on people's lives in general back then, and particularly with um, Chinese workers. It's really hard to get an accurate idea of just how many there were. And it wasn't just the Chinese ones who died. They just bore the brunt of the hard conditions. Other workers also died and were just kind of, they died alongside the track where they were working and were often just buried there and the rail just kept building along um, past them. I was shocked when I read what happened when a Chinese worker died. They wouldn't even want to um, spend the time to go and retrieve their bodies from the industrial rockfall that had just happened. Sometimes... The Chinese workers refused to work afterwards until they actually did that. But it does show in general a, a very callous disregard for the value of human life. And as I was mentioning, there was a Moore de Cosmos in his anti-Chinese league 
was pressuring no so that no Chinese workers in the country would be allowed to vote. You know, McDonald brought in a head tax to try and get extra money from them, taken from their wages, which was, you know, increased by Wilfrid Laurier later to be 10 times as much to make it an extreme hardship for some of these workers who were barely existing as it was. So their sacrifice for this railway, the great prosperity that resulted after the railway was was finally finalized, um, did not buy a lot of sympathy in the greater public for these workers at that time. How is it that people could be so exploited and yet not even, well, not even give it credit in their time for their work, specifically because of their, you know, Chinese culture and genetic ancestry, but how is it that we're not even fully aware of it even now after all this amount of time? We return Stephen shares his final thoughts, hints at his next book, I deliver my three takeaways and then my take on what Canada needs to do next. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. $500 billion in sustainable financing to combat climate change. $500 million for FutureLaunch, a 10-year program to prepare youth for the jobs of tomorrow. Helping to discover the next generation of Olympians. Artists monetizing their talents, women entrepreneurs pursuing their dreams, supporting mental health, and so much more. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. All right, who wants to earn some danger pay? All you have to do is go down in the tunnel with the nitro and set the charge. And my wife, you pay both? Okay, okay, I, I do, I do really good, you see. I went back in again, but... I lost many friends. They say there is one dead Chinese man for every mile of the track. That's what they say. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is acclaimed author Stephen R. Bound. He paints history as it happens versus how it's often glorified. November 7th, 1885, five years ahead of schedule, which is something you rarely hear about in Canada, the last spike was driven in. And as you look, and after all of you read, we wouldn't be a country without it. We couldn't have, as you said, accomplished it without just accepting what today would be unacceptable conditions for workers, I would imagine for our environment, just blasting rock at will. How should we think about this achievement? Is there a yes, but? And is that really why you wrote the book, is to let people know that we paid a horrific price? Yep. I mean, that's pretty much why I wanted to write that book. I mean, of course, there's incredible stories of success and uh, people who beat the odds and people who thrived within that context. The CPR was a triumph of engineering at the time. It was a triumph of political vision. It was a triumph of creative um, finance. Many of the workers who worked on it felt a great deal of pride in their contribution to this, but there's a dark side to it as well. I mean, do you think we've institutionalized, as you talked about, you know, it was a course of doing business corruption. It was buy land and sell it back to the government. Did we institutionalize corruption into our culture back then by saying that is the only price that's the price we have to pay to get things done? Or is that just, as you study history, is that just 
the currency of getting things done? <laughs> That's a, a great philosophical question. I mean, there's no doubt that there was extreme levels of corruption under both governments in different type, you know, once as was being managed as a public utility, but also as a private enterprise and the exploitation of people and the taking of bribes and the, the jobs being purchased and given to insiders. I mean, I don't actually think that the railway increased. I think that already existed in society and was just sort of transferred onto the railway as it was being built. You know, there's a lot of scandals. There's a lot of corruption. Governments always have their thumb in the pie when they shouldn't have it. And no one really even bothered to try and stop it too much. They just kind of uh, roll their eyes a little bit and try and get in on, on it. But at the same time, it's also, I think, there's no way something like the CPR could be completed today, which is an interesting idea in and of itself. I mean, consider that, you know, the environmental considerations of the damage to the environment that it caused and um, the working conditions of the workers. I mean, no worker could ever work under those conditions ever anywhere in Canada as exists now, unless we entirely collapsed as a society and went into anarchy or something. There's no way that any permits would be allowed for that. The, the cost of doing it would be prohibitive. And yet, that's what enabled our country. And as a Canadian, and I'm sure most Canadians agree, we have a pretty good standard of living. We have problems like anywhere else, but our institutions have been able to reasonably, peacefully adapt to change over time. Um, we have a lot of functioning within our society. It's not a collapsed state. And so a lot of good has come from that. And yet um, the environmental damage of, uh, it always comes to mind. I mean, all of these things are, t are so tied together. And your last chapter is titled Riel's Last Spike. Why did you decide that would be how you wanted to sign off your, your book. Riel is just such an interesting character, misguided, deluded in some ways, obviously mistreated by the federal government. He had such a strong future in front of him. Um, he made one bad decision which sent his life into a really negative trajectory, the ordering of the kill, the killing of this guy named Scott, who is a racist, bigoted, a-hole type of character who was agitating against Métis and he hated indigenous people or whatever. He was an orangeman from southern Ontario. Um, but he didn't necessarily need to be shot with a firing squad and that derailed uh, Riel's life. But in 1870, his first rebellion is what made people realize, oh, this is going to be really hard to get a railway out here. It took over three months for the troops to arrive from the Canadas over the Canadian Shield to Winnipeg. Three months of hard travel. And, uh, you know, the railway would, if you had one, would have been able to do that in a few days um, back then. So he, he began the, the story of the railway. And the great irony is that the railway was in 1885, basically bankrupt. It wasn't completed. The technical challenges that they faced were staggering and enormous. They had poured so much money into the thing. All the financiers were about to bankrupt. It was so tied into the whole Canadian finance system that people like John A. were fearing that the entire Canadian economy might collapse along with the CPR when it did. And the government itself had given so much money as grants to them that we could have taken the whole country down. At least that was the fear. The irony comes in is that the 1885 rebellion or uprising, however you want to frame it, that was um, 
you know, spearheaded by Riel and involved a lot of Métis and certain indigenous uh, leaders in 1885, galvanized the Eastern political establishment and the populace into a widespread public support of giving extra political cover to get money to build the final stretch of that railway to get the troops out to put down the rebellion. And so I called it Riel's final spike because I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't have had that rebellion at that exact period of time. We're talking a matter of months here and the entire, uh, the railway would have defaulted on its dividend payment that everyone was worrying about. And of, of course they didn't. As soon as the rebellion, as soon as the news of the rebellion happened, the money flowed from the government, extra debt, extra borrowing, but it was just enough to get the railway a little bit of extra money to pay for its existence and to move some troops out there. And so, you know, Riel started the story and he kind of ended the story at the same time. And speaking of stories, what are you going to work on next? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I have been thinking a lot about it. I mean, I am kind of working on a, a third book in this series. And I, I, I kind of uh, calling these the, the Canadian Foundation series, you know, it began with the Hudson's Bay Company and the fur trade, and then it morphs into the railway was the next thing. And I want to look at what happened now after this railway was built. So, Stephen, I always end my interviews with my takeaways. And the first one, it's a takeaway from both reading your book, cover to cover, and just chatting with you. And I love the way you personify. And I think it's so important for us to live history. When you just look at it in terms of memorizing dates or reading this or that, and you don't have an opportunity to put yourself into somebody else's shoes, you're not really studying history. You're setting a timetable or a timeline. And I, I love the way I felt for the Chinese and indigenous workers hanging over a cliff. I had a better appreciation for the level of corruption. And even when you're talking today that the fact that the Wild Wild West was just a really a lot of veterans who are misplaced in society. And I think it's terrific. The second thing is that I never really thought of the CPR as a moonshot until I read your book. One that not only was a great infrastructure project, with the horrific prices that we paid in terms of workers' conditioning environment. But it was a moonshot, and it also united a country. And even at the very end, you know, when it was at the stages of being almost bankrupt, once again rallied people. And I think that's important for anybody listening, that if you really want to accomplish something, and hopefully without the, the consequences of this, but if you want to accomplish things in life, it's so important to animate that moonshot. Not thinking about laying track, but think about it as building a country. And I guess the third thing is just how much the world needs to listen to people like you that take the time to uncover the entire story, because I think with all cause, there's effect. And I think you're one of the best at bringing those things together. It certainly have changed my perception of the CPR and all the narrative and all the positivity we went with it. And it made me realize that the next time I get on that train, I'm also going to not just think of the engineering marvel, but think about the price that was paid to do it and to honor the people that gave up their life to build it, to help build Canada. So for all of that and more, I really enjoyed this chat with you and having you part of Chat of the Matters. It was a great conversation. I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to delve a little bit outside the page of the book. Stephen did a masterful job sharing stories from his book Dominion and the building of the CPR. I mean, this railway became the spine that unified Canada and it stopped United States ambitions in its tracks. It also came with massive crimes against humanity and corruption that almost bankrupt our nation. 
I'll leave it to historians like Stephen R. Baum to make you decide, was the CPR worth the price? What I now want to talk about is Canada. I'm not happy where we are as a country. We seem divided and distracted. Too many are living paycheck to paycheck. For them and many others, Canada is no longer affordable or a place to dream and do. I mean, we all love to hear that we're the best place to live and we're wrapped and protected by a blanket of care. But is it fair to say that it's our borrowed dollars and excessive taxation that have been woven together to create this blanket? Next year, our interest payments for the debt owed by our federal and provincial governments will be over $68 billion. This is money that should go to health care and education and our defense. And each year, more debt is piled on and more interest is paid. Canada needs to grow, not borrow our way forward. We need to drastically reduce the number of dollars that go into running our many levels of government. We need to free up more dollars working for Canadians in Canada. We need to improve our productivity and foster and fuel a made-in-Canada economy versus subsidizing a branch plant mentality. And with so much commerce happening in the clouds, we need to invest in our innovators and keep them in Canada versus having them drain into other countries. We need to maintain our leadership in AI, be the leaders in tech for nature. Why not own longevity and become the country where research and commercialization is done to keep people living healthier and longer? We need to pick the lanes where we can be a superpower. Can we not become the country that our allies look to for ethically sourced food and the environmentally forward harvesting of our resources? Canadians populate Hollywood. Can we not tap into our creativity to create content and gaming for the world? And Canada must treat immigration as our strategic advantage, not some random number. We need to understand how many people will we need given our job losses and the automation of task work. And our infrastructure and social services, are they set up to support them? Who can best serve our calling for a growth-oriented economy while preserving our democracy and values? We only have 40 million people to feed and vast intellectual, emotional, and natural resources to harness and harvest. Let's work to earn our way forward and to create the next chapter of Canada, one that's tolerant, democratic, resourceful, and productive. Because the future of Canada and the future of our youth and you are my future deserve this. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening. Let's chat soon. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I ask Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. RBC.